Welcome to the HR Uprising podcast. This podcast series explores HR hot topics and challenges through conversations with relevant experts and real-life HR learning and OD professionals. The HR Uprising is about learning through collaboration and evidence-based action. We want colleagues to have the confidence and skills to rise up through their organizations by delivering real, lasting business value. Now, introducing your host, chartered psychologist, experienced change agent, entrepreneur, speaker, and coach, Lucinda Carney. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the HR Uprising podcast. So thanks so much for staying with us and for your comments and feedback on the previous ones. As you know, the HR Uprising podcast is aimed at forward-thinking HR, learning and development and OD professionals just like you. And my name is Lucinda Carney and I'm your host of this podcast. And today we're going to look at talent management. In fact, the myths around talent management, and then that may be really contentious. I'm going to say five reasons why the term talent management is overrated. So what we're going to do here is we do a little bit of challenging around this term talent, talent management, and then perhaps we'll get real in terms of if we are trying to do this because people are using that term to such an extent, then perhaps we need to understand how we could embed a talent management strategy and make it work in our organisation. So that's the topic for today. Okay, so here's some straight talking, or this is my thinking. I think this term talent management is overrated, or certainly, you know, the way it's been bandied around as if there's some sort of mysterious secret that only a chosen few have the answer to. The term itself, it came from uh, McKinsey and Co. It was a book called, let me just look at my notes, The War for Talent. And it was about 20 odd years ago. And this is where there's this whole focus that actually getting people with the real skills that you need, it was becoming increasingly competitive and harder to get them. Now, I'm not saying that that's actually wrong. Getting the right people into your organisation can be a difficult thing to do whether it's about the right skills or the right culture fit. But I do feel that the term has become almost elitist. And I think it comes with some baggage, which is worth challenging. Uh, You know, it's a bit like engagement, another one of these jargon terms that actually doesn't mean anything. And it's got through to the boardroom to such an extent that, you know, you as an HR professional might be instructed to go and put in place some talent recruitment, a talent acquisition strategy or a talent management strategy or talent pools. But does anyone actually understand what this means or what we're trying to achieve here? My concern is that just by using this magical term, the senior team might just then sit back safe in the knowledge that all of their people-related challenges are magically going to go away and they can get on with the real business of chasing the numbers. I think it provides us with a risk, complacency and I've got five, There's, I'm sure there's more than that, five pitfalls that might make hyped up talent management a bit of a, an issue. So my first beef with talent, my daughter will kill me for using that word, um, is that many organisations actually don't know what talent looks like. Well, come on, do you know what talent looks like in your organisation? Could you simply define and measure who's got it and recruit for it? Do you know exactly what the job roles are? Do you know what the behaviours are that would outline someone with low, average and high performance in a specific role? Do you know what the cultural fit would be for bringing someone into your organisation? 
are you capable of objectively evaluating people against those criteria if you do have those criteria? And if you were to define a talent pool, would it be clear cut with everybody in agreement or would it be subjective? And, you know, there's a lot out there about unconscious bias. Would you have confidence that it's not the usual suspects and there's bias built in? Now, if you are saying yes, 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 fair play to you. Great. I I salute you. Absolutely. But my first challenge is I don't think we always know what talent looks like. And you know what? Uh, Talent might vary from one role to the next and one company to the next. And that leads me on to my second point. My second point about the word talent is that talent is often situational. So if we take an example about things like Montessori schools, they are all based on this principle that we've all got talents, we've all got strengths. Um, There's been a whole piece about strengths-based recruitment. Uh, Kirk Hoffman, in his book, Follow This Path, it's all about successful organisations, is actually about finding the role that fits that person. Most people don't join an organisation in order not to perform, but we might well stick a square peg in a round hole and they could be awesome in a square hole, but we're not putting them in the role that fits with their natural strength. So remembering that actually someone whose talent in one role may not be in another. So you need to think about that uh, in, in context. And does that mean that we need to focus on finding people to labour as talent or would it be better for us to make sure that we genuinely understand and nurture the strengths of the people that we already have in the organisation and make sure we're utilising them effectively? And with that context, you might have a lot more talent than you realise. That nicely links into my third point. So my third point is actually... And I remember this when we rolled out well, the concept of talent management again 20 years ago, in late 90s, a lot of people found the term quite elitist. I know it's become commonplace now, but there was this sort of sense that uh, you, you have to identify a talent pool and that's, let's say, 10% of the population. So that's great, isn't it? Let's just demotivate the other 90%. You've got to think about what's going to be motivational for the majority of your organisation. So. I think the key for me is about making sure that we're thinking more broadly, we're thinking about strengths, we're thinking about everybody developing. I mean, you could have a talent pool, which is people who are over 55 in your organisation who have got brilliant strengths that will be, and and actually knowledge and skills that you want to uh, disseminate further around the organisation. They could be talent because they've got all this knowledge that they could um, nurture others and share with others. So I think this is something there we've got to think about making sure that you've got a growth mindset. I'm using that because I've been involved as the governor at school. That's a bit of a schooly term, isn't it? For everybody. And I believe that actually, if you're just focusing your efforts on the 10% at the expense of the majority, then that's a bad idea. Remember that, you know, we might put people in a pool who are on succession plans or there's certain, I had this as well, certain job types were the sort of ones which would be sitting on a succession plan. Now, actually, given that I'm talking to an HR L&D type audience, I think that's fascinating. So the business I worked in, you had a sales succession plan, you had an engineering succession plan, and you had a a finance um, a career pool or succession plan. Did we have anyone in HR and learning and development? No, because that was easy to replace. HR and L&D, we don't have talent. 
We didn't have a, um, a talent pool and we didn't have a succession plan. Says quite a lot, doesn't it? Maybe we have to start. The problem lies with us. Anyway, I digress. If you have a talent pool, unless it's extremely transparent, objective and seen to correlate directly and fairly with performance, I think that's a risk which will demotivate the majority. If you do want to take that risk, you've got to be very sure that you've got the right people because there may well be others who are unrecognised talent and they're not going to hang around for long. And those who don't care, they might stay in your organisation, but that's not a great thing either. So it is interesting. There's a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy as well there. I think, you know, do we actually tell people their talent? They put them on a talent pool, then they believe that their talent. Does that mean that they're going to behave like talent? And I'll come back to that point later. So my fourth point, though, is that talent doesn't automatically correlate with performance. And actually, there's quite a bit of evidence out there on that. And this is the crux for me. So we've done a brilliant job. We've recruited our top talent. Maybe we've paid over the odds. We've headhunted somebody with these skills that are really in demand. They were a top top performer at their previous company. We bring them in and then they don't live up to the expectations. Now, I don't know about you. I've seen that happen a lot of times. Why is it? And I think, again, like my earlier point, talent is situational. But actually, everybody needs to be well managed. And people who are identified with talent, there may be higher expectations around this. So they may have high expectations of what they're going to get in terms of the psychological contract with the business they've been recruited into. But equally, the business might expect them to just come in, walk on water and fix everything without any kind of good good induction, without clear clarity of expectations and great management. So the bottom line is, it's a terrible amount of money can be wasted if you don't have a great onboarding process, great performance management and great talented managers. Think about what we were talking about, evidence-based performance on a previous podcast. You want to get the most out of these people you're bringing into the organisation. You know, if you don't have these cultures and behaviours in place, literally recruiting for talent is like filling a leaky bucket. So I would say focus on engendering a high performance culture first, get the right behaviours in place, get your managers managing brilliantly, look for people's skills and talents already in the organisation, effectively recruit within, and you may well find you don't have to do talent recruitment to such a high degree anyway. And then if you do bring people in and you spend money on them, you're going to get much greater value out of it. So my fifth point on why I don't think talent management is a great term, I guess, or, or why it's overrated is that I also think talent management can make organisations lazy. So I think that a high-performance culture is everybody's responsibility. Unfortunately, talent management does tend to sit firmly in the HR camp and it becomes maybe an HR strategic objective and it's left there. Managers think that it's HR's responsibility to recruit, measure and develop the talent. So, And then they just relax because all that important people stuff's being sorted. I don't think that that's effective. And... The problem is the managers then are getting on with the day job. They forget about people management and those who are not labelled as talent. Well, they console themselves with the fact that they only work to live anyway. They can't see the point in trying to go the extra mile. No one's valuing what they're doing. So they think, oh, I'll just work, work my hours and I'll go home and not a minute more. But then they think, oh, I'm one of the chosen few because we've got this top 5% or top 10% of the talented ones. Well, are they going to make up for the apathy of the other 90% with their superior performance? Well, you'd like to think so, wouldn't you? But I'd say it's more likely that they pat themselves on the back and become complacent with their total brilliance because they've been labelled as such. 
no, actually, I've already been recognised as talent. Why should I even bother working hard? Maybe I'm being too cynical, but I'm you know, just challenging it out there. In fact, how about I've been labelled as talent? I've been through this amazing programme. I've outgrown the business. My manager's not great. Do you know what? I'm so good. I think I'm going to put my CV out there and see who else wants me. You know, I have been labelled talent, you know. So I'm being slightly tongue in cheek, but actually almost could you argue we're creating a bigger problem by using this label of talent for a small number of people? We might even be encouraging them to leave, let alone stay. It does depend on how well you're managing people, uh, how well this is all integrated into an overall programme, and actually whether the way you're doing this is building in loyalty. It could be, but also it might not be. It, it's got to hang together effectively. Okay, so now I've had a bit of a rant about maybe talent's not the ideal term, although I'm very honest, I haven't got a better one that people will understand. It's one of our well-known HR jargon that goes across everything from talent pools to talent management to talent onboarding and talent attrition. Uh, it would be great. Well, it's people, isn't it? It's people. So if you have got this position where you know, your board's saying, we need a talent management strategy or onboarding strategy, then I suppose what I thought would be useful, given that we have this position, is how can you do that? So I would say this is rather like an organisational development strategy, really. It's about showing how your business strategy and key organisational goals are going to be aligned with the people that you're bringing in and the development that you're doing for them. So it's about joining it all up again. So it's obviously valuable for us to do this because it is about joining up strategic business outcomes and people or talent initiatives. This can give people the chance to be taken seriously and make sure that we're bringing in value. And it's joining up the reason that you are spending money, let's say, on people or initiatives. So if you are doing talent pools or talent development programs or any other kind of development program, we'll drop the term talent, shall we? Then I think the key is making it strategic. So the way in which I would suggest you need to do this is, first of all, you need to understand from the board or the senior management team what the future goals and drivers are for your business. You need to think out for the next three to five years. So what is the competitive landscape out there? What challenges are there in the marketplace or environment? So uh, what's the competition doing or how are other organisations getting ahead? So I'm thinking what's quite topical at the moment and a classic example of being non-strategic would be the fact that we've got more GPs leaving um, general practice than we have coming in. We've not got enough midwives in terms of the NHS. And of course, we've got Brexit, which by the time this podcast goes out may or may not have happened. All of those are actually making the people available to recruit, the talent, if we want to call that, within that environment, fewer. And you can see that that's going to drop off a cliff in certain areas. If I take another example engineering. We've got baby boomers, lots and lots of baby boomers in technical roles in businesses who are all going to retire within the next five, 10 years. That is a crisis, um, potentially, if those key skills are still needed. And um, It's often the case where you've got things like legacy technologies. So you need people to realise that in three, five, 10 years, if we carry on doing what we're doing, what problems might we have related to people or skills? Could also be where you've got competitors who are poaching key skills, how can you be competitive in that environment? Now, by having this conversation at a higher level, then you're making that connection between asking for budget for training and development 
and getting sponsorship from the board. And ideally, it means that when you're running whatever kind of development you're running, it will be seen as relevant. You're going to get the funding and also you'll get people attending it, which is the other pain. We've put on these fabulous programs um, or interventions or collate fabulous content. No one uses it. They don't come on them. So this is how we need to do it. We have to line it all up with future goals and drivers. A bit like change, it's creating that compelling reason to do it. Then we need to identify how that overall strategic goal is going to be impacted by those skills. Uh, we can think about, you know, what the problems are. Are we going to have to recruit them? So if we are going to run out of these skills, then are, is it about us recruiting people with new skills? Really difficult in things like uh, NHS, midwifery and, and medics, because medics, it takes 10 years to recruit. So even if there are, you know, 20% more doctors' places at university, they're not going to be the consultants for another 10 years. In some more technical environments, then you could actually put in place things like apprenticeships. So you could look at all the different interventions that might help and consider which ones would be the right ones to address your particular need. So if we went from the point of view of legacy knowledge or technologies, you might look at a number of interventions that might be effective there. So you might recruit apprentices and make sure that they've got that specific technology. You might also do uh, an internal development program where people are taking on those different um, skills. You might do some sort of matrix where you can see who has which skills and do a gap analysis in terms of development. You might put in a buddying program or a mentoring program where skills and knowledge are being shared. You might get some of these people who have those skills to come up with key learning. So whether it's um, online quick reference guides or other technology built learning or e-learning. So there's loads and loads of ways you can get at it about keeping that knowledge in the business and allowing others to do it. But what you're using is the number of strategies to keep that skill or knowledge in there. So once you've got your recommendations, you might want to then get people to buy into it. And I always think actually, if you're trying to develop a strategy, whether it's an OD strategy or a talent management strategy, a great way of doing it is actually trying to get it on one page so that then you can go to the board or the managers and you can say, look, this is what our problem is and it's a visual and this is what my solution is. And they can see, because it's all on one page, how all of these things link together. Then, of course, you've got to plan the implementation. So we've defined our big picture. We've got the buy-in. Now we've got to put it into action. So you work out your different projects. You're going to manage it like a change program. And you need to make sure they're all kept aligned with the overall strategy. One way of doing that, if it's a change piece of works as well, is about forming a steering group. Uh, and they might be managing different aspects of it. It depends really on how many measures you've got that you need to put in place. Now, if I want to develop skills, I might use interventions like 360 feedback at the start and the end of a programme in order to measure progress. Or if I was recruiting in, I might be using specific psychometrics or uh, criteria that we've robustly identified within the organisation to check these people have the skills and attributes we're looking for. We might have done some evaluation of job roles to understand what exactly is required in job roles currently and in future, which means because we did that pre-thinking, we can then measure whether or not it's working. And that's our fifth stage. So it's about communicating the strategy. It's about implementing that strategy. And there may be many aspects of it. It's about monitoring whether or not that strategy is delivering what we want. And it's about tweaking. Now, things aren't going to be perfect. It'll be about getting some comments, getting some feedback, 
tweaking it and adjusting it. And then we'll get better um, buy-in and commitment. Try and make it as measurable as possible, but make sure you also keep it fresh. Don't be afraid to update it over successive years or completely refresh it. So for me, that is basically how you would manage to link these things together. You'd, first of all, be open-minded about what talent looks like. Secondly, be clear. Do you actually know what we're looking for in terms of talent? Are we being overly elitist? Is that going to be benefiting us? Are we creating a climate where everybody is able to be talent? They're able to play to their talents. If we are putting something in place where we're running an overall program, then let's make sure it really is clearly aligned with the business strategy and it goes far enough out for the future in terms of the challenges. And then when we put it in place, let's monitor whether it's doing what we wanted it to and not be afraid to tweak it, adjust it uh, and, and improve it as time goes by. So to my mind, a talent management strategy is really about joining up the dots, but taking everyone else with you. As with so many of these things, I think it's common sense. However, I am aware that common sense isn't all that common. And I would say let's try and avoid whatever you are doing. Try not to introduce pockets of people related initiatives that don't join up together. If we do that, that's it looks disjointed and no one understands why you're doing it. What happens, therefore, is you lose the backing you lose the sponsorship, people stop coming and things might be actually start to work against each other. And of course, then the credibility is lost. So important to get a strategy agreed with senior sponsorship and ideally get ownership from above. And that leads into general change management. Keep changing it and, uh, you know, remind people of the bigger picture, why we're doing it. Uh, it's not just about badging people's talent. It's about making the most out of the resources that we have in our business helping everybody be the best they can be. And it's about everyone performing and taking the organisation forward. So that's my take on talent management. I hope that was thought provoking. I welcome your comments, feedback, criticisms as ever. Uh, I'm not saying that I am the complete expert on any of these things. These are just things that I feel from my research and from my experience. And I hope that they may be useful or at the very least thought provoking because at the end of the day, if you think I'm talking rubbish, at least it's got you thinking and hopefully you've got a better suggestion. And if you do have a better suggestion or a better way of doing things, that's brilliant because actually that's what the HR uprising is all about. It's about us all collaborating together. I have some answers. They may be relevant or helpful to some people, but between us, we may have all of the answers. And together, if we look up, we can all rise up together. Thanks so much for listening to this week's podcast. My name is Lucinda Carney. Do connect with me on social media. I'd love to hear from you. If you want any of the links or references, there are a couple of white papers that we've got on our Actors Resources page. As ever, you can see the notes and links to the HR Uprising uh, website within the notes. You can go there and we will signpost you to relevant resources if you want to go further. Thanks a lot and have a great week. Thank you for listening to the HR Uprising podcast. You can access more information, including resources or links mentioned in the show at our website, www.hruprising.com. Also, you might want to join our LinkedIn community or tweet to us at HR Uprising. We'd love to hear from you.